0: We don't win down here. We lose. You ready for that? Oh, you, th- oh, you were a post-millennialist. You thought we were just going to go waltzing into the kingdom as you took over the world.
1: Yeah. Welcome to Nobody with a Bible. I'm Chief Nobody Brandon. And here we talk about all the things and use biblical discernment while doing so. So let's dig in. Not using your feelings, but God's truth. What's wrong with you people? I'm serious. I mean, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. All right, welcome to part two, the U. But before we begin, make sure, if you haven't watched part one, the T, the T in tulip, T standing for total depravity, that is part one. Please go back and uh, watch that before or listen to that before you you listen to this one here. But today we're covering the you in tulip and looking at it from a biblical perspective and talking about it a little bit. I'm gonna to try to simplify it. It's a very complicated subject. I am absolutely not going to solve all of the discrepancies that arise from it. Nor am I going to try to right now. Rather, I'm I'm just going to try to uh, teach it simply and look at it from a biblical perspective and find out: Is this is this from tradition of men? Uh, is this something that was invented or cooked up by by John Calvin or some other reformer? Or you know what what is this? Um, and and I think once we look at it, we'll see that. Uh, it's something that's extremely biblical in its correct context, and it not not of course in its extreme context. So, getting into it, unconditional election kind of goes over uh, sort of it. Basically, the term base describes the position of election because there's a few different views on the on election. What, what's election? Well, the elect, it's a term that's used throughout scripture, specifically speaking of the nation of Israel, but it is also depending on the context referring to the church and those of us who are the new Israel, those of us who are one in Christ. So it's important to uh, identify the fact that God has a s- distinct program for Israel and it, the church does not replace Israel but yet there it's it's important to look at them as God looks at them as a whole and one together under the atoning death of Christ and and Jesus so so the elect depending on context I will admit can refer to the church. It's important, though, when Jesus is speaking of the elect that we we pay close attention because there are times that he is specifically speaking of Israel and a prophecy that will be fulfilled specifically to Israel. A lot of time we can see that Jesus is referring to a more broad context where he's speaking of all the elect. So it's 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 absurd to say that we can't apply Jesus words in those who are elect to the church and to the principles of um, what I just kind of dubbed I guess New Testament salvation I mean that's not really the right term for it but but people that 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 don't you know or Pauline salvation is is probably the the more specific term for it. But um, if that's not the term, I just invented it. But not to look at, uh, you know, what Christ is referring to is, is, you know, like when we speak of the sheep of Israel, they would say that the Lord is, is speaking specifically to Israel and he's not speaking about his sheep, his chosen ones. And again, I mean, there's, there's nothing in the text that would indicate that the same truths, of, of Christ that are, are true to the Jews are true to us as well and we are, we are grafted into these blessings so we know that the elect absolutely is going to refer to those who God has chosen we all agree in the doctrine of election one way or another simply put we would say We believe in scripture that some people do go to hell. Yes. Okay, we can all affirm that. We agree that some people will go to heaven. Yes, we affirm that. Okay. God knows who those people are that he decides to save. Yes, of course Okay, and then we would say, well, then does God choose them or do we choose God? And this is where the differences in election comes from, because one side says that we can choose God and become elect. The other side says, no, 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 that's not what scripture says. Because scripture says in Ephesians chapter one, verse four, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love before the foundation of the world. He predestined us. uh, He in verse five of Ephesians, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. So it's clear that God chooses before the foundation of the world. It says, scripture says, you, you, you would have to deny what Paul says here. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So you would either have to reconstruct this to say, no, that means that he... When we choose Him, then we became elect because He chose us to be in Him. And I'm like, you're drawing circles around this trying to get away from what, what is said clearly here. It says, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So He chose us. In Romans chapter 8, in verse 29, it says, Those whom he foreknew. The word foreknew right there is not he foreknew what you were going to do or saw what you were going to do. The wording there is a intimate relationship. He chose intimately. He foreknew for those whom he foreknew. He also predestined. There's another word, predestined. This is a a guarantee. You you have already been chosen for this destination. You, You have already made it to this destination in God's eyes. For us, it's a process. But you are predestined for this. So he foreknew and predestined this. To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then in verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Justified and glorified. Remember, and he predestined us and called. So he called us to that destination. He foreknew intimate relationship. Those in him. Nowhere does it say that man has any part of choosing this. This was all done by the Lord. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work. So it's not of something that we would have done or will do. So that none of us may boast. But we are. In the verse 10 of Ephesians 2, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God prepared these works. He predestined you for this, and he chose you for this. This was something that you had nothing to do with. Absolutely nothing. It's clear. This is clear in Romans chapter 9. You have to do a lot of, of looking at the text and saying, Yep, I know that's exactly what it says and that makes sense, but that's not true. Because Paul says clearly, clearly, In verse nine, for this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return to Sarah and have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. There's, there's, it's because of God that prepared these works before the foundation of the world that we would walk in them, that we got to this. This is by his grace. It was by nothing that we would have done. He didn't look down the corridor of time and say, you know, I see that, that this person would have faith and this person would have faith. So those are the ones that I'm going to save. No, those are not God's parameters to salvation. God's parameters to salvation are a mystery. Those are completely his. And we are in error to even attempt to understand God's choosing of this. And that's exactly what Paul says in Romans 9. He says, who are you to even ask these questions? Who do you think you are? Really, there's no answer. We don't know and we don't have to have an answer in scripture. We don't have to have an answer for everything. We don't know. What we do know is that we are supposed to go out, show the love of Christ, and and preach the gospel because we are told to. And and, and again Romans 9:10 and 11, I, I just did a series on it. Paul explains clearly all of these things. He, he spends the he, he says these things clear and, and we need to make sure and as I said I'm I would I would appeal to my dispensational brothers who dispensational teaching and 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 I believe and I would consider myself more dispensational than anything well I mean I'm a leaky dispensationalist like John MacArthur but my dispensational, Brothers and sisters here are the ones that, that, that attempt to oppose these doctrines so strongly, but I think that they we, we need to take a look at them and, and, and understand them and at least have respect in these divisions. But here, as far as election goes, the U in TULIP stands for unconditional election. And that means that salvation is based off of solely God's choice and election. So election you is an intimate relationship, a individual relationship with this person before the foundation of the world that God did that. And again, we don't know God's parameters. We don't know. It doesn't matter. Charles Spurgeon says, until you can pull up somebody's shirt and show me the E on somebody's back, then we assume the election of everyone and we preach the gospel to everyone. It shouldn't shouldn't matter to us. But there is a beautiful truth in house, in Christ, the meat of our belief, the, the beautiful truths of Christ, the fact that we did nothing to earn our salvation. We did nothing. To, to, to get here. We, we can't. We are completely and totally depraved. And we cannot do anything. To get here. And for that we rejoice. Because it's it had nothing to do with us. There's no conditions. And no parameters around it. Except. That everything God does glorifies him. And I think that we can get a preview of that in this life. Because I think we can see horrible, wretched people, including myself, make a complete and utter turn. And just like they said about Paul, the one that is persecuting us is now preaching the gospel. And they glorified God because of him. So I think the Lord can, and that is why, He takes the worst of the worst and, and shows His glory through that. And that salvation is offered to any man, any people group that comes to that salvation and calls upon the name of the Lord and remains in the name of the Lord. The offer is there. You, you have to reject it in order to not achieve it. In a system of how this works, God chooses some. and He does so unconditionally. So this is something that is a complete biblical doctrine. There's there's no conditions. again the other side of this argument is conditional election and it says that god foresaw and foreknew those that were going to have faith in him that were going to do good things and he decided to save them that's sort of misrepresenting the position a little bit so forgive me because i do believe that 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 doctrine still falls in the realm of orthodox christianity because we just understand the mechanics of this a little bit different, but that's that's simply just not true, and it's not biblical. There's nothing wrong with it. I think that the Lord, the Lord will bring all of us to truth, and even teachers can be wrong, theologians can be wrong, the reformers can be wrong. It doesn't matter what man and traditions of men says. It matters what Scripture says. And these points, I want to, the last point that I want to bring out that we're going over, a lot of these tend to be, uh, you know, a lot of the, the older guys try to look down on younger guys who are very zealous about these things. And I would caution, uh, I would caution trying to stifle that unless it's something that's completely out of line that does not bring glory to God and it, it brings malignment on his name. I would say don't. What are you doing stifling that? These, they're, they're passionate for these things and for these true doctrines of salvation and realizing that, gosh, how we haven't done anything to receive God's grace and mercy, but we believe and we have it. And for that, we rejoice and we want everybody to understand that. Everybody that we meet to understand that. And so they're very zealous for that purpose. And and I know that's why working through this, even myself, as I've gotten, you know, getting older and and understanding this even more, it gets me deeper, deeper in understanding that I did nothing. God did everything. And when he did that, he completely came in and changed it. It wasn't some just thing where I decided to call myself a Christian and everything worked out in the end. That's the way that I easily could describe my, my salvation experience. But my salvation experience doesn't dictate biblical truth. I was not a believer when I was living in sin and I was willfully being sexually immoral. With it's not That's not what the Holy Spirit does. He doesn't just sit back and cross his arms and go, okay, I'm just going to watch him do that. Can a believer fall, fall and could they fall into to sexual immorality? Sure, it could happen. I'm not sure to what extent it could actually happen, but it can. And, and I guess humans are human. But, <clears throat> you know, it's not going to be something that's willful and something that you enjoy and something that you don't care about. It's a complete and utter change. So, we have to understand that that our salvation experience and, and how we came to it does not it does not dictate biblical truth you didn't stumble your way upon jesus jesus was regenerating and and you know bringing you to this regeneration process where you've been completely cleansed and purified and, and and dwelt by the holy spirit and now you have a new nature a new heart put in you and now you can no longer walk in the ways that you once walked. You cannot. It will absolutely destroy you. It will absolutely ruin you. You will learn to hate who you once were. You will you will hate who you were in the flesh. And you will understand when that comes back. And that will just absolutely ruin you. And you will suppress that. And you will go to the Lord in repentance when you find that surfacing again like Paul says in Romans 7. I mean, he says that, you know, I basically he's carrying around a dead corpse who that's not part of his new nature, but it's there. And until it's gone, we have it. And so again, we haven't we haven't done anything to reach this goal. We haven't done anything to get here. It's only only by the grace of the lord that he decided to save any period and if you are a believer of him simply believing in him and letting his life transform you then you are one of the elect and that election is completely and 100 percent unconditional so this is a biblical doctrine it is not a doctrine of men It's not something that was just cooked up we can we we can find this all throughout scripture And so I hope you all enjoyed the U. We will be back on the next episode with the L for, well, the L. This is the most controversial point in all of the five points of what's derogatory called, derogatorily called five-point Calvinism by many people, um, uh, which... A lot of these five points I said, that that people are really just pitting on hyper-Calvinism and not just what the actual thing, like we're talking about, just looking at the biblical points of it, but L for limited atonement, which is the most controversial ones, which this is one that I've wrestled with for a while, but recently I've come to a few better understandings about it and i and and i i think that we can all agree to some extent and whether or not we want to say that this is the uh biblical doctrine of calvin or i mean the 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 true definition of of calvin's version of limited atonement well then we will have that discussion there but we'll be back next time
0: On the Day of Judgment, do not not fear for the atheist so much, the thief, the murderer. If you want to be afraid for someone on the Day of Judgment, be afraid for those who carried the title pastor. Let me give you an example. I gave this example last night. Let's say that a king had a bride. He loved her. He dressed her in white. She was pure and precious to him. And the people admired her her for her virtue, for her merit. And the king has to go on a long journey. And so he he uh, tells his steward, he calls his steward in and he says, here are the directions and you are to care for my bride. You do not deviate from this, not not one jot or tittle. And when I come back, you'll be rewarded or I'll come back and you will be severely punished. Keep this book, these instructions with regard to her. Well, after a few years, this steward realizes that The people are losing their loyalty in the king and they're no longer concerned about the bride because well she's just prudish she's old-fashioned so he takes her and dresses takes off her beautiful white garment and replaces it with something really sensual paints her face like a prostitute and then marches her up and down the kingdom and uses this new look to attract carnal men back into the kingdom when that king comes back there, there are no words to describe what he will do to that steward. And when Jesus Christ comes back, there are no words to describe what he will do to many of these men who call themselves pastors, who have done to his bride exactly what the steward did in that parable.